Acts chapter 6, 1 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I do not know a pastor or a church that would not like for the church to grow. There may be one out there, but I, in my conversations with pastors and church people, we all want our churches to grow, both in our depth of understanding and service, but also numerically we want them to grow. We want them to be bigger and bigger. Now, we may not be doing the things that are necessary for our churches to grow, and we may not be taking the right steps for them to grow, but we at least say that we want them to grow. But let me just ask you this. What would happen if they did? If our churches grew, and if they grew explosively all of the sudden, how would we be able to manage that sort of growth? And what kind of problems would explosive growth present to us? That's what we find today. We find in these first five chapters of Acts, explosive growth in the church in Jerusalem. We find that on the first preaching of Peter, the church grew from 120 to 3,120 in one day, one preachment. And then thousands more were being added, and the church was exploding in number. And we find here in Acts chapter 6 a first event. And the first event that we find here is an internal problem. An internal problem in the church. And the internal problem in the church is that there's difficulty in managing the growth. And so that's the, that's the, the problematic of this text. The, the problems up to this point in the church have been external problems. They've been persecution, opposition from outside. But now we have a threat to the church that comes from within the church. And this comes from the multilingual nature of the Jerusalem church. Because it identifies two different groups here. And these two different groups are called Hellenists, and they're also called 
The other group is called Hebrews. So Hellenists and Hebrews. Who were the Hellenists and the Hebrews? Now, all of them were Jews. This is a 100% Jewish church. And if there are any Gentiles, they're no longer Gentiles. They become proselytes. They become Jewish converts. So they're all Jews. But even within Judaism, there were these two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And this was primarily a linguistic distinction. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that in successive waves, the Jews were dispersed out into the nations. The Assyrians came and they spread them out in the nations. The Babylonians conquered and they exiled them to Babylon. And when they had the opportunity to come back, many of them didn't come back. They stayed out. This is the diaspora. This is the dispersion of the Jews. Well, when these Jews grew up in other lands... They kept their Jewishness, they established their synagogues, but what did they learn? They learned the native tongues of those lands, which is what immigrants always do. And their children grew up speaking the native tongues of those lands. But they wanted, usually, if they could, to die in Jerusalem. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem to end their days. And so, you would find in Jerusalem, as we find here that there were widows who came back to Jerusalem, and either they went as widows, or they were widowed once they came back, and they were older. And widows who had grown up in other places would not have the natural friendship and family groups that the those who grew up in Jerusalem would have. So we have Aramaic-speaking Hebrews, and we have Greek or other language-speaking Hellenists. And this was the primary distinction. It was a linguistic distinction. But there were also cultural distinctions that would go along with the linguistic distinctions. Because some grew up in Jerusalem or Judea or Galilee, and others grew up out in the diaspora. And their culture would be different as well. So even this church, which we usually look at as something of a a monolith, it was a Jewish church, even in this church, there were different groups, sociolinguistic groups. And that situation presented a problem. The problem was this. The problem was that the widows of one group felt that they were getting overlooked. They felt that they were getting overlooked. And we should see something. We actually jumped over this in this in this leapfrog sort of series that we're doing this summer. We should go back and look at how the church took care of the poor. If you go back to chapter Chapter 4, verse 32, just a couple chapters before where we are. In verse 32 it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as anyone had need. Remarkable. Voluntarily, spontaneously, people were selling their possessions and laying them at the apostles' feet. They would then be distributed to anyone who was in need. And it said that they had no needy among them. 
The church in Jerusalem had no needy among them. Later we'll find out that there were needy people in Jerusalem because of a famine, and then the Gentile churches helped them out. But they helped each other out to begin with as long as they could. And notice something here. Notice something. They laid the proceeds at the feet of whom? At the feet of the apostles. So it looks like, at the beginning, the administration of the possessions of the church was under the direction of the apostles. Now keep that in mind. Now, let's go back to our text and find out what the problem was. And by the way, this text goes, problem, solution, results. That's where we're going. So the problem. The problem was that the Hellenists perceived, either accurately or not that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. Now, widows in those days did not have 401ks. Widows were, did not even have inheritance rights, usually. Um, they, were, they, were, uh, they had uh, the right to a maintenance, but they didn't, uh, didn't have the provisions that, that many times widows have today. And so widows were a vulnerable group, but they were a protected group. And the church was going around and distributing to all the widows who had need food every day. And that's a remarkable ministry. But the Hellenists were looking at this distribution of food, and either accurately or not, they were thinking, our widows, our widows are not getting as much food as the Hebrew widows are getting. Now, this is instructive. It doesn't say that the widows themselves complained. It says that their group complained. The Hellenists complained that their widows were getting overlooked. And this complaint is instructive because it illustrates something about human nature that is always on display, and at least in my perception of coming back to the United States uh, these last few years, is especially on display lately. And that is this, this characteristic of human nature. We all tend to identify with our group and see things only from the perspective of our group. It wasn't that the Hebrews were coming and saying, now, we should make sure that the Hellenist widows are getting their fair share. No, it was the Hellenists who were saying, what about our people? What about our widows? We demand that our people get our fair share. Does that sound familiar? That's, that's always, that's perpetual, but we're feeling that very much. And an inability to understand anybody's perspective outside of our tribe, outside of our group. Now we'll see that that changes when we get to the solution. And so we'll be, be ready for that. It's a remarkable change that takes place here. But it's also something, it's illustrative of this. How a simple, how a simple logistical problem can divide a church. And this is not the last time that that's happened. A, a logistical problem that if people will put their heads together and just figure out a better way to do it, the church can move on. But when that doesn't happen, churches can be divided. We, as churches today, all around the globe, are facing significant logistical problems. And not just we, businesses, governments, schools, families, everybody is facing 
logistical problems, logistical problems like we've never seen before. And churches particularly are facing logistical problems about how we do what we do, how we meet for worship, how we study the Bible, how we evangelize, how we meet for prayer, how we minister to each other's needs. That has gotten to be very, very challenging during this pandemic. And and I have heard of churches that are pulling apart because of this, because they have different opinions about how these logistical situations should be managed. So we need to take this as a a warning to us not to let logistical problems cause fissures among us. Now, that's the problem. And we don't know exactly what was going on here. Because there may have been, although I personally doubt it, there may have been intentional bias on the part of the Hebrews against the Hellenists. That's a possibility, but I tend to doubt it. And the reason I tend to doubt it is because what we find in the solution. So hold on. But that may have been that they were, they were intentionally overlooking the minority party, that they were intentionally slighting the widows from the Hellenists. Another possibility is this. There may have been accidental preference, accidental preferential treatment because of misunderstanding, linguistic misunderstanding or cultural misunderstanding. We could, we could imagine something in our mind. The Hebrew people who were going and distributing the food, they go to the Hellenist widows and they ask them an Aramaic, what do you need? How much do you need? And they answer in Greek. And then the Hebrews go away and say, well, we think they said that they were fine for the day. And so they move on and give the food to someone else. We can easily imagine with a linguistic problem, and believe me, I've been in these many times, we can, we can imagine misunderstanding that is not intentional bias, but it's ignorance and it's misunderstanding based on cultural or linguistic differences. And another possibility is there may have been no preferential treatment whatsoever, but simply the perception thereof. It may be that every widow got exactly the same amount according to her needs, but there was a perception of preferential treatment. But however that might have been, the apostles thought it was serious enough to deal with it, to deal with it themselves. And their solution was not to, not to take on a new ministry for themselves. Look at how they, how, they, how they handled this. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, what we would call a congregational meeting. And they said... It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word of God to serve tables. Now, we need to be careful how we read that. They were not saying, we are above this. This is below us. And we know that because they were the ones, apparently up to this point, who were managing the possessions and the distribution. 
So they were getting their hands dirty. But they saw that this was a a problem that had grown significantly and a ministry that needed more attention. And if they were going to dedicate themselves to that ministry, they would be neglecting their primary calling. They weren't saying that it was unimportant. They weren't saying that it it was something that shouldn't take up the attention of the church. They were simply saying, it's not our job to do everything. And so... And by the way, this is something, this is something that, that I have had a hard time learning. When people ask me, what does a missionary do? What does a missionary do? What's the job of a missionary? My answer has always been this. A missionary does whatever is needed at the moment to move the work forward. And I think still that that's mostly right. I think that's mostly correct, and I'll come back to that. But then there were times as our ministry grew significantly in Mexico where I found myself doing things that were taking me away from the primary calling I had. Was it really good that I taught geometry or that I was the wrestling coach at the Christian school or the interim director at the Christian school or the painter and the architect and the interior designer on our building? Were these things that were good for me to be giving my time to? They were good things, but was I the one that should be doing it? So that's a lesson that I have had trouble learning. The apostles were much, much wiser, of course, than I. And their solution was this. Congregation, you, you choose, you elect seven. Now, we don't know know why there were seven chosen, but they proposed that number. It says, "You, you choose seven men from among you, And they had to have three qualifications. Verse 3. Good reputation. Good repute. Full of the Holy Spirit. And wisdom. Those are the qualifications. Good reputation. Full of the Holy Spirit. And wisdom. And then they said, You choose these men, and then we will appoint them. The congregation chooses... And then the apostles appoint them to this ministry. And then they said in verse 4, and this is what will happen. There will be a division of labor. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The widows will be getting taken care of. And we will be fulfilling our ministry of prayer and preaching the word. And so this is what they did. Verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so they proposed it, congregational selection, and then the apostolic appointing, the laying on of hands and prayer to commission them to this Ministry. Now, it doesn't give these men a title other than the seven, the seven. But this, many people think, was the start of the office of deacon. Deacon. When you look at the New Testament, there are two offices in the New Testament. There is one called deacon, and that word is just really a Greek word that means servant or minister. And then there is elder, which is also called bishop, which is also called pastor. 
So there aren't uh, many offices. There's just these two offices of elder, bishop, pastor, and deacon or servant or minister. And this doesn't call them any of them, although it uses the word to minister here, to deacon, to serve. But many people think this is the start of that, that office of the deacon. A division of later labor where the elders, pastors, bishops dedicate themselves to the, the ministry of prayer and the word, and the deacons dedicate themselves to the, the possessions of the church, the administration, the management of the church, and the care for the poor. But however that might be, this is how we, to this day, in our Presbyterian churches, this is how we choose our ministers. This is how we choose our elders. This is how we choose our, our pastors, bishops, uh, uh, elders. And how is that? The congregation chooses. The congregation chooses. And then those who are already in office do the laying on of hands and the praying and the appointing. So this is still how we do this to this day for elders and for deacons. And I want you to, I want you to notice this. We're a ways away. We're a ways away of, of having our own elders and deacons. We're still looking to get our, our first members established here. But when that time comes, when that time comes, folks, look for people who have a good reputation, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and are full of wisdom. These are the primary qualifications. And there are other lists elsewhere. Timothy, Titus have lists. But they, they emphasize these character qualities, these godly character qualities, and then they mention some skills. They mention some skills, but the emphasis is on the character, the godly characteristics of those officers. Now, I want you to notice another thing about this list. The whole church did this. They liked the proposal, and they chose seven men, and these seven men all have Greek Names. All seven have Greek names. Now let's think about that. Now, Greek names had seeped into Judea. And so it wasn't impossible for a Hebrew of Hebrews to have a Greek name, like the Apostle Philip or like the Apostle Andrew. Those were Greek names, they weren't Hebrew names. But at the same time, when we look at this list, and all seven of them have Greek names, it looks like what the church is doing here is choosing Hellenists, or at least principally Hellenists, or at least those who would be most amenable to the Hellenist group among them. Now that, if we're reading that correctly, if that's what happened here, this is a fascinating choice. This is a very instructive choice, and it's a challenging choice for us as well. For us who have the same tendency of all humans to be tribal and to look after our group. If, if we're reading this right, and they chose Hellenists to be the seven, then what was happening here was the majority party, the Hebrew, was looking for those who could most effectively serve the minority party. They were not saying, we're in the majority here, we're going to get our guys into this position. They were saying, oh no, some of our people feel like they've been slighted. Some of the people in our church feel like, 
feel like they haven't been ministered to or treated fairly, we are going to go overboard to make sure that their needs are taken care of. And they elected those who would be most effective in taking care of the Hellenists' needs. Now that's a remarkable thing that they did there. And that's why I think that there was probably no intentional bias from the beginning. Because we see here the overwhelming generosity of saying, in this, in this position, we want your people, the people that you understand, the people that can communicate with you, the people that can take care of your needs, we want them to be the ones who have this privilege. Now, um, that is a very radically Christian thing to do. That's not a very common human thing to do, but that is a very radical Christian thing to do. You have power and you use it to bless the weak. You have, you have the upper hand and you use that upper hand to take care of those who are in need. That is a radically Christian thing to do. And it's a radically Christian thing to do because that's what Christ did for us. Back in, well not back in, moving ahead to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he describes the mind of Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul says that's the mindset, folks. If we are Christians, if we are followers of Christ, that's the mindset that we must have because that's the mind of Christ who is the King of kings and He did not regard His glory as something He had to hold on to, but He made Himself one of us. And then He made Himself in the form of a servant. Then He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself all the way to the cross where He died that that most shameful of deaths to pay the penalty of our sins and the sins of all who trust in Him. And then it says, the text goes on, Therefore, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus knew that the way to exaltation is through humiliation. And the, the early church knew that as well. They, they knew that the way to exaltation was by putting the needs of others first. And that's exactly what they did. So that's the problem. That's the solution. Let's see what happened after they did that. And it says in verse 7, the solution, or I'm sorry, the, the result... And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became 
obedient to the faith. Multiplied? Wait, there are already thousands in the church. And then they multiplied even more? Yes. Why do they multiply even more? Because now we have 12 apostles who have been set free from these other important ministries because other capable people are doing these important ministries and now they can go out and preach the gospel even more. And the church multiplied even even more. And it says that a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now there were a great number of priests. There were thousands or tens of thousands of priests and Levites and they took turns. They weren't in the temple all the time. They would live outside of Jerusalem often and they'd come in and they would take their turn and then they would go back home. And there were thousands of these that would come and go. And it says many of them became obedient to the the Christian faith, to faith in Christ. And this is remarkable because you remember back in the Gospel of John and our series of John, who, who were those who were some of the strongest opponents of Jesus? The chief priests. The chief priests were against Jesus. And they were the ones who hounded Him all the way to the cross. And now, thousands apparently, or at least hundreds, many, many priests who were under these chief priests, they were saying no to the chief priests and yes to Jesus. So this was a a radical infiltration of the Gospel into, into the power structures of Jewish society. Now, this was possible... Only because there were seven who were willing to serve food to widows. And we can, we can understand how important the seven were if we just ask ourselves the question, what would have happened if the church would have said, no, 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 we want you twelve to keep doing it. We trust you. You're the apostles, so you keep doing it. Or if the seven had said, you know, it's not really my calling I mean, I really don't feel the call to, to serve tables. Uh, I really would rather do something else. And we can imagine what would have happened. The, the divisions might have gotten worse and worse. And the, the evangelistic ministry of the church would have been hampered and, and maybe ground to a halt because the apostles would have had to take care of these very important and legitimate needs of the widows. So what's the takeaway here? Takeaway is this. Everyone in the church can and must contribute to the mission of the church by doing that which God, through the church, calls you to do. Now, that means that everyone can contribute to making disciples of all the nations. Not directly. We can't all go to the nations. We can't even all go out and be engaged like the apostles were in the, in the, necessarily in the ministry of the word. All are called to be witnesses. We saw that in the first lesson. Uh, all are endowed as prophets. We saw that in chapter two. But at the same time, there are, is a division of labor. We have the seven waiting on tables and we have the twelve preaching the word. But now, that's a little too neat. Because at least two of the seven became very, very effective evangelists and preachers of the Word. 
and the twelve never forgot the poor. Wherever they went, they made sure that there was an emphasis on taking care of the poor. So, there is overlap here, but a wise division of labor enabled the gospel to go forth. And that was only because everyone was willing to do what the church needed them to do at the moment. You remember Nancy Reagan's Nancy Reagan's campaign? Just say no. Maybe you didn't know that was Nancy. Just say no. That was her big thing. Anti-drug. Just say no. That's, that's as easy as it, is, as it is. Well, we're going to make a little adaptation of that. And I just actually heard this from somebody in our church. Didn't put it quite this way. But uh, somebody in our church who has been very willing to do whatever the church has needed at the moment said, you know, an elder told me this one time. That if the church asked me to do something, I should assume that the answer is yes. So here's the motto. Just say yes. You see something that needs done in church? Then here's another one, Nike, right? Just do it. Or the church calls you to do something. The church says, hey, we need help with this. Just say yes. And maybe you'll find that that's not your area but at least you'll be moving in the right direction and eventually you will find your area. And your area, with you in it, will contribute to the mission of the church of making disciples of Jesus Christ. So, what we're doing in this series on Acts, as we have this pause during the pandemic, we're hoping that this pause is really a reset button where we can reorient our priorities to the priorities that we find in the original church. And my hope and prayer is not only that we and other churches survive this pandemic, but that we are positioned to grow significantly after the pandemic is over. And even before, if God would give us that surprising gift. But if we do grow significantly, we need to manage that growth by doing three things. And here they are. The first one. Maintain unity by putting others' interests before our own. The second is by keeping our focus on the mission of the church, which is making disciples and orienting all of our ministries to enable the church to do what the church and only the church is called to do. And the third thing is, by all of us doing the part that God, through His church, is calling us to do. Let's pray. Our God, we read about the explosive growth of the church, and we long for that in our day. And we long for that so that many would know Jesus and find salvation in Him. So that Jesus' name would be lifted up and so that people would be rescued from their sins even as we have been rescued from our sins. But Lord, I confess that we're not ready for that sort of growth. And I pray that as You have given us this time of reflection and pause, that You would enable us to orient ourselves toward growing and 
toward managing that growth when you're pleased to give it. I pray for all of us that we would put others' interests before our own, even as Jesus did. I pray that we would keep our eye on the ball and that we would keep our eye on the mission of the church of making disciples. And that as you call us through the church, that we would say, even as Isaiah did, Here am I, Lord. Send me. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.